I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is season two of Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues, from Say Her Name and Me Too to the war on civil rights and the global rise of fascism. This idea travelogue lifts up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars, and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements, and even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways. What would you all say to the next mother who finds herself entering this sisterhood of sorrow? Dear sister, I want you to know I see you. I hate that we have to uh, meet under these circumstances. Now you're facing something you're dealing with something that you never could even begin to plan for or account for, and that is the murder of your beautiful daughter. We're carrying it all, and still trying to be strong for everybody else. They don't want to hear about black women being killed by police at all. We are an organization here that support each other, and we extend our arms or extend the olive branch to you. Because this is just deep. It's life-altering, shattering. You don't know which way to turn. Family members don't understand because they've never been through it. Understand this. You feel though you're by yourself, and you're going to feel that way many, many times. That feeling is never going to go away. But what will never go away also is the love you have for your daughter, the same way that each one of us have experienced the murder of our daughter. We keep fighting because of that. You birthed that baby, you birthed your daughter, and you'll birth her continued legacy as well. We're here, you can call us, you need us to come, whatever. And there's never an incorrect time, any time. You have that urge to talk, yeah. just pick up the phone. We only phone call away. I don't have any biological sisters, but these are my sisters and they understand, we understand each other's pain. If you get justice or you don't, this will always be what we do. This is what I look forward to. Yeah. This is my therapy, right? It almost allow. It's almost like a. Um, it holds me over. It's enough fuel to you know to keep me going. And we have true, true sister love. Yeah. True sister love. Cause with, without y'all, I don't know where would I be today. We have to fight, and we have had to continue. We've had to kick and fight and scratch and scream just to survive, all the while wishing our daughter was still here, the same way you wish your daughter was still here right now. We love you, we know what it's like. We have to just keep it going and say their names, mm -hmm. not just hush-hush. We need to keep it going and say her name. That was an excerpt from an open letter from the mothers of Say Her Name to the mother of Breonna Taylor. On this installment of Under the Black Light, the 11th in the series, we were joined by mothers and sisters of six black women whose lives were stolen by police violence. Sandra Bland, Michelle Cousseau, Shelley Fry, Corinne Gaines, India Kager, and Kayla Moore. Throughout history, time and time again, we see stories driving social movements. 
from the work songs and spirituals of enslaved black people to the post-emancipation work of writers like Ida B. Wells and Zora Neale Hurston. Stories are the lifeblood of social movements. From the political demands of civil rights leaders like Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King to the publications at the center of marches we're seeing across the country today, narratives have been deployed as tools of radical resistance, rebellious protest, and reimaginative community building. It's stories that cut across time and space to tell us what we need to know about a problem. Without stories, there's hardly space for a movement at all. This truth simultaneously holds that if your story doesn't exist within a movement, then that movement isn't really for you. Without your story, any benefits of social transformation that might come from the movement are left to be trickled down, flattened, limited in their utility. Centering the stories and perspectives of black women, girls, and femmes in the discourse around police violence sends a powerful message that indeed, all black lives matter when it comes to police violence. In our collective outrage around cases of police violence, we serve a warning to police that officers cannot kill without consequence. But if that's the case, then our silence around cases of black women and girls sends the message that certain crimes may not merit the same kind of repercussion. Say Her Name is a campaign to advance a gender-inclusive narrative in the movement for black lives to prove that black lives, all black lives, do in fact matter. So in this conversation, we bear witness to the stories of women's lives and those of their families who are fighting for justice. We mind the possibilities and the conditions that led to the tragic loss of their lives, and we examine the possible policy changes that could have made a difference. We'll hear from Maria Moore, the sister of Kayla Moore, Fran Garrett, the mother of Michelle Cousseau, Rhonda Dormius, the mother of Corinne Gaines, Sharon Cooper, the sister of Sandra Bland, Sharon Wilkerson, the mother of Shelley Frey, and Gina Best, the mother of India Kager. I want to go to Fran, who, as listeners who've heard our interview of her in the eighth episode of Intersectionality Matters, uh, you'll know that we call Fran the godmother of Say Her Name, because, Fran, it was your action that spurred us to carry Michelle's name and other Black women into many of the marches that many of us were participating in in the aftermath of Michael Brown's death and the no bill against uh, Eric uh, Gardner's killer. Um, and I have to give a shout out because it was my uh, big sister-in-law, Barbara Arnwine, who sent me the link to your action protesting the Phoenix police officer, Percy Dupre, who killed Michelle while carrying out a mental health pickup order. Now, as you've told us, Michelle suffered from bipolar schizophrenia and she had gone back to school, graduating at the top of her class to become a peer advocate for people who suffered from mental illness like her. So it was August 14th, 2014, just five days after Mike Brown that you lost your daughter. So what is it that you did? Well, like you were saying, it was a few days after Mike Brown's death. 
And uh, this had happened to my daughter, and I refused to let it go unrecognized. So what we did was I chose to take a casket and march it down the street to City Hall and demand justice for my daughter. The world was going to recognize that I had lost someone as well. And she was murdered by the hands of the Phoenix Police Department. She also had, like you said, a history of mental health issues. And um, she didn't deserve to die. The world was going to recognize this. What really strikes me about the story that you have um, shared with us about Michelle is how the catch-all justification given for Michelle's killing is the one that's used for pretty much everybody, namely that lethal force was necessary because the officer feared for his life. Now, that's implausible in almost all the cases, but it is especially shocking in a case like this, when the whole reason that the officer is there is for a wellness order, they come heavily armed, in this case with plenty of backup. What is it that you think he saw when he encountered Michelle that gave him some sense that his life was in danger? Like, what did he say he saw and what do you think he saw? He saw a black woman. Uh, a black gay woman, lesbian. I'm sure he saw fear on her face. He didn't see a damsel in distress, okay? First of all, I know what he didn't see. He was there to help her, and he's there to serve and protect, protect and serve. But this is something that he did not do. He says she raised a hammer to eye level or something, and he feared for his life. But it was seven other officers surrounding him. I just don't see how he feared for his life. If he feared for his life, he should have turned his badge in right then and there. When you told us that story, it reminded us of Natasha McKenna. Natasha McKenna. Uh, was a black woman whose killing it is actually on, on video. A lot of people say, well, the reason why we don't hold up the names of black women is that it's never caught on vi video. Actually, that's not true. There are uh, some killings. And of course, being caught on video shouldn't be the thing that determines whether your loss of life matters or not. But in that instance, there was you know a video that started from the very beginning. These are six hazmat clad officers who you see them suiting up and you think, my goodness, what are they going to go do now? This must really be some dangerous stuff they're about to do. And they, and they knock on a door and they say, Natasha, we're coming to get you. And the door opens and this small, nude black woman comes out, couldn't be more than five feet tall, and basically says, you promised you wouldn't kill me. And then the police proceed to kill her, taser her to death. And so Fran, uh, after Michelle was killed just a few months later on uh, November 13th, nine days before Tamir Rice was killed, Tanisha Anderson was also killed. They call the police, mental health uh, situation. They just need help in bringing Tanisha into the home. The police show up. 
They're like a hammer with a nail. Uh, anyone that's not controllable becomes a law enforcement problem, and they try to force her into a confined space. She breaks free. They do a takedown move. And again, like what we saw with George Floyd, they knee her as she lay prone on the ground. While she calls out for her mother, the other officer holds a gun on her family. So I look at this, looking at the horror of Tanisha's family, and I think, how deep is this wound? How familiar is this um, disrespect for our family bonds? And it, it makes me think then of what happened. Rhonda, you are there at the place on August 1st, 2016. You're, you're trying to de-escalate the situation that was unfolding when police try to force entry into your daughter's home to serve a warrant for, I think, traffic court? This is traffic court that they're... Misdemeanor. Misdemeanor, having to do with, with driving. Yes. How did the police respond to your efforts, her loved ones, to de-escalate the situation to save her life? Well, for one, when I arrived on the scene, expressing to them who I was, I was not really taken seriously. But when I spoke with the officer, you know, and I let him know that she had a therapist, I even got the therapist on the phone. They hung up on the therapist because she said she would be willing to give them any information that would help her. And he hung the phone up and said, I'll talk to her when I need it. And I'm like, well, you know, the therapist is on the phone. Why would you, you know, address any issues that she may be able to share with you now? And so from that, they proceeded to take my phone from me. And throughout the day, they utilized my phone to communicate with my family members and friends that were calling to check up on me because it was being streamed live. People coming to me saying the next day, you answered me. And I'm like, no, I didn't answer you. Backtrack a little bit. You know, they went to, to anticipate serving a, a misdemeanor traffic violation. Like you said, she had a registered firearm in her home. But when you're in your home, much like Breonna Taylor's family, and you hear somebody answering your home with a key, and you and they don't, admittedly, they don't address who they are or introduce themselves as law enforcement initially, you know, she did have her firearm out. And Corinne had an issue with police because she had a traumatic incident with them where she actually lost twins. And so I think it really did something to her. I've had several people, you know, in hindsight say, you know, do you think she had postpartum? But she had lost a set of twins in the care of, of law enforcement. And she just, you know, on that day, she just decided I was not going to be taken back into their hands. But for the officer, Officer Royce Ruby, to basically shoot her in her back, basically out of frustration, and admitted in his deposition that he never saw her, but he was trying to aim high enough to hit her in her head to prevent hitting my grandson. He was also shot twice. It's so many layers to all of our situations because when a narrative is presented by the media and the officers, it's already thrown out of context. You know, so then you have to go back and try to humanize, you know, somebody that has been already victimized. And I'm sure that's most of our stories. In Corinne's case, there's the additional dimension of social media. Facebook, this is being streamed. And, and finally, you know, the police, as you said, got frustrated and asked Facebook to stop streaming. How long after Facebook complied did Royce Ruby go in and shotgun your daughter to death? Within minutes. 
I actually got a call from one of the representatives from Facebook, basically saying that they were given instructions. An injunction was put in place to interrupt her live feed. Almost being, they was being apologetic. You know, the media interrupted something that could have been caught on tape. Not that I really wanted to have been, but what would it, what did they have to hide? You know, if they weren't going to do anything different, what would exactly. they have to hide? Exactly. exactly. Not to mention, they shot down the possibility of flashbang grenade. Myself requesting to go in and speak with my daughter. They told me that that wasn't acceptable. That gives finality to people. You are there. You are available to go and try to de-escalate the situation. The therapist is on the phone. Yes. Um, same uh, with Fran, right? Fran was on the phone also trying to de-escalate. The officers say that they don't need that. Well, the only reason they don't need it is because saving life is not the priority. Right. I mean, you didn't even know what had happened. And when I, had, I didn't. They had almost like a change of guard. And then all of a sudden, right about the time the live stream went down, they all left and all these new officers came in. I don't even know whether I mentioned that we weren't allowed to leave. They followed us to the bathroom. Wherever we circulated, they, they had someone on us. But when the new officers came in and I saw the other ones going, I was asking them, we're like, what's going on? Nobody had an answer. And so at that point, I decided I'm going outside and I'm going to find out what's going on. And as I got out to a church where we were being held, the officer that had been in lead the whole time, you know, I'm asking, who is my baby? What's going on? And his response was simply, she's gone. And your grandson is on his way to Hopkins because he was wounded. And so I'm like, she's gone? What do you mean she's gone? That callously, he says that, like, she, she scraped her knee. She just fell. No, she's just dead. That's basically what he said. She's just dead. It feels, as I was saying earlier, Ron, it, it just feels familiar. It feels like there's an inhumanity, both in what they do and then how they interact with us as a people after they do what they do. Yes. And so Corinne was like five, she was five to 105 pounds. She was really, really tiny, but she had been extremely outspoken on the police terror that had been going on because the young man, Freddie Gray, who lived in our community at one point, you know, it had overwhelmed everybody nationwide. But can you imagine people who knew him? And so she had already been speaking out against the violence and, and you know, just the whole oppression idea. She spoke out about it. And I think sometimes people come to their breaking point, like, you're not going to just do anything to me. You, you're not going to just walk in my house with my family, you know, and put my children in, je in jeopardy. You know, and people say, oh, she held my, her son in front of her. No, she did not. It was proven that she was actually making a peanut butter sandwich for my grandson when she was shot through the wall, which she was not visualized, through her back. And, and then the other officers um, said on the stand that, Officer Royce Ruby then, after a few minutes, went in and engaged her two to three more times center mass after she was down and had already bled out. And the, these are parts of the story that, that people don't know, and their not knowing allows them to continue to infer facts that are not correct. At the same time, there is a sense that there's something underlying the reaction to the death of Black women, particularly when they are standing up for themselves. They, they've had enough. They're not going to take it anymore. And so, um, Sharon Cooper, I want to come to you now, because like Corinne, 
the encounter that proved deadly for your sister Sandra began with a traffic violation. So it's worth saying again, Sandy Bland is gone because Office Insignia initiated an encounter on July 13th, 2015, because he says Sandy didn't use a turn signal to shift lanes. Of course, that's the, the on the record justification, but I think anyone watching that video knew the real reason why that officer escalated the encounter. Your sister was asserting her rights, calling this cop out, using his badge. So it, it's hard not to see it as, you know, her being punished for challenging that. Now that seems clear, at least to me. What's less clear is what makes some folks, and I'll even say some black folks, seize upon what, what they call Sandy's attitude, you know, her failure to comply, even with an unlawful request. Why do some folks focus on that rather than on the cop's unlawful command? Is there something in this I guess, license to punish us for defending ourselves, something particular to how Black women are treated. Kim, I think so. I've just been listening to all the mothers and the sisters on the call, and the thing that Miss um, Fran said that resonated with me the most was how Black women um, and Black girls honestly are perceived on site. Um, if we just think about the historical contours of how Black girls and women have been seen. We've just always been seen as rendered immediately invisible, whether it's the help out in the field or the help in the house, raising others' children, being perceived as objects as opposed to human beings, and the historical nature of that carrying on to present day. And so when officers who largely um, don't look like us, when they see us, they don't see their mothers or their sisters or their friends. They see an object that is perceptively by society standards out of control that needs to be placed under control. And that's where the breakdown uh, begins from the outset. We, we don't have a fighting chance in this narrative because we are perceived um, from a subjective lens as opposed to being taken as what we are with each individual encounter. Yeah. You know, my, my former colleague, Phil Goff, hit me to some, some of his research a bit ago, and I keep coming back to it and trying to understand the, the particular vulnerability of Black women. As I understand his research, he found that officers who score higher on masculinity threat are more likely to escalate and, and resort to lethal force than officers who are not insecure in that way. And that masculinity threat was even a greater factor, predictor than even those officers who have, you know, high levels of implicit bias, racial bias against black people. So it made me wonder whether that helped us to understand whether black women sort of exceptionally trigger that in these kind of cops. Because, you know, first of all, we're black, which is just read as being aggressive across the board. And and we're female, which which presents us as available for, for gender discipline. Whether those things are more likely to trigger these masculine, insecure, you know, cops. Because frankly, I find it hard to believe that a white woman who was driving to the grocery store would ever be pulled over for a failure to signal. And then however attitudinal she becomes would be threatened to be lit up, assaulted, thrown in jail, 
$5,000. I mean, right. Immediately perceived as, you know, she's having a bad day. Yes. As, as black women, we don't get to have an off day. We, we don't get to, we don't get to genuinely be upset about something. Um, you know, when you think about when people say, don't tell women to, to smile, especially black women, it's because what? That's a command and control tactic, right? So, and, and we've seen uh, far too often scores and scores of videos of white people, whether they be women or men, not complying with the police. And what they get in, instead of brute force is they get a talking to, they get a discussion, they, they get a chance. And those windows and those moments of chances that they get means that their life is preserved. And what makes ours less than is deeply rooted in this notion that we've never been seen as whole human beings, but as three fifths. And there seems to be a denigration of that with each situation, specifically when it comes to black women where our lives are snuffed out um, and our names disappear from the rallying calls and from the protests in spite of people re always referring back to the black mothers who are impacted. And I've consistently said it over these last couple of weeks is despite black women and girls showing up for others. And I think Sharon Wilkerson said it so well in, in the story ahead of time about the fact that like we're having a hard time and we're hurting, but we still try to pull it together for others. And then when I ask myself who shows up for black women, it's women like you, Kim, it's women like Miss Fran, it's women like Miss Rhonda, Miss Gina, and every other woman on this call who is showing up on behalf of other black women. Yeah, yeah. So Maria, your sister, Kayla Moore, was one of the first among this group of our sisters who was taken by police on February 12th, 2013. So it was a 911 call made by a roommate that led to a fatal intervention. The circumstances tragically devolved into these officers piling on her, restricting her airways. So much like George Floyd and Eric Garner, her final words were, I can't breathe. Now, George and Eric's death now underscore the lethality of chokehold, but Kayla's story, that's difficult to find. So tonight we're lifting up her story. What are the conditions and the risks that Kayla's last words draw our attention to? Well, it draws our attention to the fact that instead of giving her the proper care and resources that the city has available, the first responders were the police. You know, when I hear the story of George Floyd, it just brings back everything that Kayla went through. And Kayla didn't get um, a lot of the national attention to George Floyd's cases, but, you know, officers are incapable of de-escalation. They're all about control and subduing the person. This is what I've been advocating for for the past seven years. And it's hard to make this change. People are under the perception that people who are mentally disabled are violent, that they're dangerous. We need cops on the scene for these you know, crises. And that is just not the case. And you know, one of the consequences of the names not being said is that the stories are not known and therefore the reforms that might be driven by telling the story aren't realizable. So you mentioned that it's been seven years. It's been seven years and we still have to have a conversation about how de-escalation needs to be a priority, how removing police as first responders in mental health calls has to be the first thing done like yesterday. Maria, I, I wanted just to follow up and I guess pose the question this way. 
One of the dimensions of anti-Black police violence that we've been confronting in Say Her Name is the intersectional dimensions of that vulnerability. The fact that many of these stories that we're going to hear tonight are not stories of like a singular expression of racial power, but they reflect intersecting vulnerabilities, being Black, being a person with mental health challenges, be being trans. So even when your sister and others are included, Sometimes what they're included in isn't an analysis that is intersectional. They stand in for one single issue or another single issue if they show up at all. So what is the importance of an intersectional frame in fully understanding Kayla's story as, as a story of anti-Black violence, anti-trans violence, and violence against people with disabilities? Right, yeah. Um... Kayla was the trifecta. She was black. She was a black transgender woman, and she was mentally disabled. So she managed her disabilities. She really did as best she could, but society does not did not see her as being worthy. The fact that you know black trans women you know have a lifespan of 35 years old that's that's unacceptable. You know, Kayla died when she was 40. Um, we cannot keep you know, marginalizing this community, but, um, you know, being a, a black person with mental health issues is extremely challenging. And when the police respond to someone like Kayla, they don't know how to handle her. They don't know how to handle the, the fact that she's transgender, the fact that she is actively psychotic, but not violent or dangerous. You know, they saw her not as a person, but as an it. So we need to be able to change the, the culture of the police department, you know, which I really, you know, that that's really not my, my priority. I could care less about the police department. I just want to make sure the resources are out there so that the police don't have to be involved in these calls, period. Other states have done this successfully. We need to get on board with this and just make it a national issue. You know, mental health services need to be a priority, period. Absolutely. Um, so I started this conversation with um, meditation on the importance of stories in undergirding uh, movements for uh, social change. So I Can't Breathe has become uh, a contemporary uh, uh, imperative that launches us into seeing and imagining uh, what happened to uh, Eric Garner to George Floyd underneath the power of a uh, police officer choking the life out of them. I Can't Breathe should also come to represent the story of Kayla Moore, a black transgender woman with mental health challenges who lost her life because of all of those things. Gina, I want to come to you on the gender dimensions of anti-Black violence against women, and in particular, you know, the response to it. So one of the most horrifying aspects of your daughter's murder is how little regard those officers had for her life and the life of her four-month-old baby, Roman. They were both in the car with uh, uh, Roman's father, um, trailed her car for a number of hours, uh, basically targeting him. And, and I have to say, as, as you often point out, an inaccurate tip from a confidential informant that he was about to do something, but there didn't seem to be any probable cause for it at all. 
In any event, on September 5th, 2015, they had a SWAT team ram the car as she was in it. They threw flashbang grenades and then fired 51 rounds into her car. Now, the chief of police told you that they didn't mean to kill India, but they obviously didn't stand down not to kill India. So this much is clear. Now, I have to say, uh, one would expect that there would have been a huge outcry about her murder, a huge outcry about putting Roman in danger as well. Yet you say that even here, India has somehow been blamed for her own death. How is that? The presumption was that India was in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong person. But India was in her own car with her own baby and going about her life. And when they put this perception that our beautiful ones, our loved ones are responsible for their murders, what they're also doing is trying to deflect and sanitize and minimize their responsibility for murdering them in the first place. Mm-hmm. They were fully cognizant that in the three plus hours that they monitored India's car, watched her, of course, this is a SWAT team, so training is not an issue here. There was no deficiency in training. As a matter of fact, this was a highly trained unit, highly militarized unit with all the gear necessary to de-escalate had they chosen to, they chose not to, but also they put out lies that they weren't even aware that the baby was in the car. How was that? They they saw her going in and out of homes, visiting Angelo's family to introduce the baby. So how did they not know the baby was in the car? Because that's what they want the general public to believe. Once again, to sanitize their behaviors, their murderous behaviors, that there's no way that they did not know. There were 16 SWAT officers with a combined, uh, well over 43 plus years of quote unquote expertise. And this was a SWAT unit that goes over and beyond the normal training of how, if you even want to call that, that normal police officers receive. So for them to lie and claim that they didn't even know the baby was in the car speaks to the further distancing and divorcing that they do of themselves of humanity. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about a baby and an innocent woman. So we've come to expect... Uh, the police to to cover for themselves, um, no matter how egregious the circumstances might be. But it is a little surprising, I think, that there wasn't more of an outcry when India uh, was killed. And and so I'm curious about what people in your community uh, had to say about it, people closer, you know, to home, people who you might have expected, you know, would have really gone to the mat about uh, India being killed in these circumstances. So how, how do you get to, uh, you know, she, she kind of brought it on herself, even among people who are not the police? We accept the narrative that they put out, that no matter what has happened, that the police are correct. In Virginia Beach, they shrugged and went back to sleep. I live here in Maryland, and again, there was just the deafening silence, which again speaks to the erasure of black women when our lives are snuffed out, no matter what we're doing. There was nothing said, nothing done 
about my beautiful daughter, Indy Kager, who incidentally also was a Navy vet, but she died and bled on, on United States soil and no one even cared, no one. And there was a baby in the car. If she were white, it would have been a different story. In so many of these instances, we're not just talking about daughters killed, we're talking about mothers of children being killed. There is, you know, of course, your trauma, and then there's the unmet trauma of children who are left behind. And I'm really struck about the fact that, you know, victims of private crime, there are resources for them. There's a recognition that society needs to do something to, to support uh, victims of, of private crime. But uh, victims of police violence, I mean, not only is there not uh, anything to support them, Gina, you, you shared yesterday that you got a bill for the destruction of the car. So on, on that note, I, I wanted to bring Sharon in because I know you also have a story to tell about the unmet trauma of children who are, are left behind. So I've heard you talk about what it's like when your grandchild, who's seven years old, asks where, where mom is, um, or when she gets teased at, at school uh, because of this unspeakable tragedy. So can you talk a bit about what some of the reverberations that you've dealt with um, that most people, you know, don't understand? I use the term taken because they didn't just lose their life. They took our daughter's lives. And I have to deal with the consequences because she has two daughters that I'm raising. And one of them was dealing with peer pressure with the kids teaching her talking about her mom and she has to defend herself. She just had a birthday on last weekend and her mom's not here to celebrate with her. And that's not just hard for her, it's also hard for me because I have to fill in those shoes. And I always tell my grandkids, one of them asked me, well, can we call you mom? I say, no, you know your mom. I will always be grandma. I will always be here for you me as a single grandmother because yeah. there's a lot of questions I can't answer and the majority yeah. of my time I spend my time trying to be strong and not break in front of them but there are some times where I just can't help myself and even with all of this that's going on what it did it opened up that wound again you know and and it's really 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 been hard each one of us is reliving our children's story and Sharon and, and everybody has said in one way or the other in our conversations that this moment is hard because it's triggering and it's bringing you back. And um, it's hard because for so many of you, there's still no closure. No, nothing has, has, has happened for the most part. So I'm curious about whether anything is different uh, with the man who killed your daughter's life or off duty sheriff who was a Walmart security guard, Walmart. This is a Walmart Renica, who's also a Houston area minister. Yes. So has anything happened in this moment of, you know, accountability? No, nothing has happened. And to top it off, he was a 27-year veteran on the force for 27 years. So he knew the difference. He knew she didn't have a weapon. 
knew all of this before he even shot. But his story acts like everybody else's story. Oh, I was fearful for my life. None of these young ladies had weapons. None of them had weapons. You went shooting. Yeah. Yeah. Went in to yeah. kill. For what is, again, to go back to you know, some of what is acknowledged in many of the other cases, minor, you know, crimes, minor, even even allegations are minor. So the, the claim that, you know, uh, he was interrupting uh, a getaway, you know, he ends up shooting in, into a car where there are children uh, because of suspicion of, of shoplifting. Let me come back and just ask some rapid fire things. Um, we've talked a little bit about media, and of course, one of the questions that Roy's just mentioned is, why don't we know these stories? Why don't we know uh, these names? So my question is, what have the media done? Uh, first, to distort the story. So how many of you uh, have seen or had to deal with the media distortion. That's the one side. And uh, what about media elevation? Do you see your loved ones uh, being picked up? And, and, and if not, you know, why not? So uh, Maria, you, you started us off earlier uh, with a conversation about how, how the media work. So what, what was your experience? I was so enraged when I, I read the articles that came out after Kayla was killed. The police are basically framing the narrative of what happened that night into what they want the, the public to see or he, and hear, and it's not the truth. Their um, alternative ver version of what happened was not even close to what actually happened. So, you know, this, that was very concerning. Um, that's what they do. You know, they, they want to put it out there that your loved one deserved this, that they were out of control. They were, there was no other option that they could do. And, you know, they will go in their background. You know, they brought up the fact that, you know, Kayla was intoxicated. Well, who cares? Kayla was in her own home cooking dinner, intoxicated. I've been there. So what they want to do is disparage their, their reputation and just give the, the, the officers uh, the reason as to why they had to murder our loved one. So, you know, I, I, I personally went to a reporter and I told her, I said, I'm not going to give you another story. I'm not going to give you any more, you know, quotes to put in your article because you are biased and it shows. So I called her out on it. And the article that she wrote was actually neutral. I will not give a, um, an interview until I put that out there to the reporter. Be like, this is what I want to see in this article. Yeah, yeah. Sharon, I, I want to come to you because uh, your sister is probably the one name that more people know about, but were there still, notwithstanding that, some distortions that you saw? So many. I just couldn't agree uh, with Maria Moore. Um, there's so much that sticks out to me. Sandy died on a Monday. She was on the news by Wednesday, the local news, and she had made it to the national headlines by Thursday. And based off of the local news reports, there were inaccuracies that were noted in their stories and they went ahead with them anyway, specifically that she was traveling through Texas with her mother. My mother wasn't even there. Um, but specifically what sticks out to me is the district attorney in the Texas case, he referred to Sandy as not a model citizen. 
and it stings so very badly when you hear your loved ones being discussed in that way. I was just looking at the headlines that were being shared in, in this reference um, to Shelly of a shoplifter being killed as opposed to a mother that was killed. The selective use of adjectives to describe our loved ones, to describe Black women and Black girls, it is with the intent it's intent to shape public opinion. And if you can shape that public opinion early on, that's how you start to influence how people feel about what justice was meted out or what justice is to serve. So to Maria's point, and I know it's incredibly hard to do in the face of crippling grief um, and sadness and heartbreak, um, is to continue to speak up for your loved ones when there is a, a camera or a microphone around so that people understand that, that people have family who love them. These Black queens, I love the way Ms. Gina said, these queens, these queens, these young Black girls, they have people who love them and who care about them. And the more that we spoke up as a family, I'm not going to say that it completely reduced all of the misinformation, but it minimized it a bit because people knew that she had people in her family who would speak up and be like, that's not true. That's not true, and here's why. And we've gone even as far as to provide positive images, because that's another thing that gets into the psyche of folks, is the images that people see of our loved ones. They you know, try to make our loved ones look deranged or you know, share mugshots if they are avail available, as opposed to, um, I love Tanisha's picture because it shows her in a form that we can connect to as educated graduate. You know, I, I love the pictures that I always see of, of Corinne with her children as someone who loved and cared about her children. Um, you know, India's picture in her Navy um, attire. I just, I think it's important to reshape the narrative as early on as we possibly can. And it's hard to do when you don't have, um, as Gina said it, um, the resources or even the blueprint for how to do that. Thank you for that, uh, Sharon. And, and and then, of course, you know, there's the, there's the question of not just the distortion, but the erasure. So one of the things that the APF did uh, when we first started was to actually try to create an artistic rendering of the kind of work that has to be done to find what happens to black women, girls, and femmes that, that die from police violence. You actually have to look for them. You know, you have to make that effort to look between the cracks to find uh, their names. Um, so now this is, I think, the third or, or fourth rendition of this image, this graphic image. And it is designed to actually say, look, you know, say her name, can you, can you see them? Why do you all think it has been so hard to consistently see Black women who are killed by the police? Why there's a need to actually create a demand to say her name? Well, for one, you know, women to me haven't hardly ever been treated as equal to men, you know, as far as their importance in their pure existence. You know, even though we're the ones that keep bringing forth life, you know, we're just, to me, not deemed as important. So, you know, one of us are killed. To me, it's almost like there's something that's normal, but it's not normal. Because like we stated earlier, these are women who were taken away from their children, you know, their families, just things uprooted, you know. And so we're just not looked upon as the same. That's the, that's the only thing I can, you know, conclusion I can draw, you know. Mm -hmm. We're mm -hmm. just not. You know, we did the civil trial. We didn't have any criminal charges filed. But when people got to understand the, the, the facts of what happened and we went to the civil trial, 
six jurors unanimously decided that this officer used excessive force. To win a trial like that and then have a, a, a judge come back and overturn it as though it didn't even happen, stating that, one, he had qualified immunity, which was on the table several times prior to the, the finality of the trial, and then once we went back for appeal, said, said on, this, on the record that we had tricked the jurors. You have people that have spent two to three weeks and have come up with a decision that they heard what they heard and they agreed upon on what they agreed upon. And to have the judge come back and in his written statement said, they got it wrong. You know, so we just can't win for losing. And just, just to put a point on it, it is rare to actually get a, a judgment um, in, in a case of a police shooting. I don't even know uh, many other cases where it went to a jury verdict in, in connection with a black woman being killed by the police. Um, I think the judgment was 30, 34 million or something. 37 million. And, and so this is, you know, wrongful death. It is uh, for an injury to uh, your grandson. And this judge overturns it. And, you know, basically effectively said, y'all didn't do the, the right thing. So justice is just us many times. Here was a moment where justice was as close as you could get because nothing is going to take the, the pain away. But the, the statement that this was wrong and that the loss that you as a family experienced needed to be compensated for, to overturn that is, is basically say, no, 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 that they don't count. And so it's telling us a lot of things. It's telling us one thing we need to focus on is the qualified immunity issue. We need to focus on judges. We need to get rid of many of these judges that don't value our lives. Um, and we need to have an agenda that consistently integrates the conditions under which Black women lose their lives into the broader demands, the broader justice that is being advocated for. You know, Gina, I want to come back to you and I want to come to, to, to Sharon, partly because, you know, you all came into this family and have been part of it uh, since, uh, since, since we reached out. So describe a little bit uh, about what people may not be seeing about how you guys, you know, roll. <laughs> what is it? Don't be wrong. <laughs> that Say Your Name does and is, and how it's constituted. That is multifaceted, multilayered, um, fraught with uh, unimaginable pain. But then there's the de determination that we have grandchildren. We don't have the option to not fight. We don't have the option to roll up in a ball and languish away when we know that, just to step back on what you mentioned about the media, the destructive manner in which they report. It's not even reporting. It's just regurgitating what the police have told them. And then realizing that you've got grandchildren who are going to one day grow up and read and see, ask questions. India's babies, one is five now, permanently disabled, and Evan is um, on the autism spectrum. And how we roll is realizing that if we don't roll, we will literally wither away and die. And the police have killed our daughters, but they kill us too. We already are impacted with intergenerational trauma. We're already impacted with unconscionable grief 
that we have to try to modulate day by day to even focus on what do I do next? Do I even roll out the bed? Do I even, what do I do? We don't have the luxury. We have children, we have grandchildren, we're fighting for them. And in fighting for them, we're also fighting for their mothers as well, that they have a memory that they can hold on to one day about their mother. Thank you for that, Gina. I, I, I wanted to share the, the fact that of, of many of the things that you all have inspired is a play, Say Her Name, The Lives That Should Have Been. And uh, it, it starts with the actors playing you all, dancing and singing, uh, We Are Family. And then we move on to uh, basically capturing the fact that something very, very small determines the difference between life and death in your loved one's lives. We're, we're living in a split universe where all of the beautiful queens uh, still live because something was in place that saved their lives. And the other side in which um, the reality that we're currently consigned to um, exist. So, so we want to transition to, to our end uh, by playing just a, a little bit of Rhonda's daughter's, Corinne's poem, and the young actress who also takes up the baton and recites the poem. The Vampire Theory. Our blood reeks of royalty. They can smell it in the air. We're so used to our own scent, we cannot fathom what we bear. They know of our greatness. I'm just trying to taste it while others are trying to waste it and the white man is trying to trace it. But even in trying to find what is truly beyond divine, they can never go back far enough. We're way beyond their time. Therefore, in the meantime, they hunt the queens and kings with crime. Used to hang us up with strings to trees and other things. Now they tote guns with beams and wrist rings. Same old ankle chains still beating us the same. Ain't nothing changed. Except now they're trying to survive. Can't find any use for us alive, not knowing we can't die. So while they're chasing blood, snatching bodies, eating babies, and raping our minds by having sex with our kind, they can only become us. With every thrust I trust, they only raise our army, and I trust that we are righteous. So we see that spirit, we see that energy, we, we see Corinne, we see Corinne. And we want to we want to continue to see all of your loved ones. And in the spirit of lifting up, I want to end by asking just a, a few of you to tell us something about Vicky McAdory. <laughs> Mama Vicky, Sister Vicky. <laughs> what can you tell us about Sister Vicky? <laughs> Woo! She kept us in stitches. <laughs> Vicky had the capacity we could be in that thick moment, that oppressive heaviness, and she carried her own, but also that fight, that warrior mama, warrior auntie in her, where she can get behind us and say something to make us laugh, remember, recall, recalibrate, and then get out there and do what we must, because she was a fighter. She was a fighter. And she literally, with an unbridled tongue, would say whatever she was going to say. Keep us laughing, but also keep us aligned on the purpose while we were together. She's fighting for her baby, India Beatty, who was killed six months after my baby, India, in Norfolk, Virginia. We missed her because Vicky died 
of a complete broken heart. Of a complete broken heart where the struggle and the determination, you have to strike, you know, the pendulum swings here is constant. And in her mind, she's grieving for this little girl that she helped raise. Yes, yes. And, and Sharon, I know you, you and Vicki had a little special relationship. What do you want to uh, leave us with in memory of, of Vicki? Just before she passed, it was, the, um, it was um, Break the Silence. And her and I was roommates. And I tell you, she, she kept me in check. I said, I'm tired. I'm not going to go. I ain't going to you get ready to go. I said, oh, God, I got to get up. We was trying to get us something to drink at the um, summer camp. So Vicky and Maria caught an Uber. I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> they caught an Uber to go get us some vodka so we could drink. <laughs> that was the best. That was the best summer camp I ever went to. So after all that, then we get to the airport. We miss Everybody missed their flight. Me and Vicky missed the flight. So we end up getting a snowed in or something happened. Vicky, you got to call somebody to get us a room and we hungry. <laughs> and I'm telling you, I, I miss her. And the hurting part about it, I miss her phone call. She, I guess she was calling to let me know she was in the hospital and I yeah. missed it. And the next phone call that I did get, it was telling me that Vicky yeah. had passed. Yeah. You know, I, can I share yeah. that I take solace in knowing that our lives here is finite but that Vicki is on the other side, we would not be together as sisters right now, even on this call, if it weren't for say her name, if it weren't for the having a place where we can come be together, we wouldn't be together. But I like to vision Vicki on the other side with our babies, with all of ours. And she's fighting along on the other side as well. Thank you for that. Thank, thank you for, for lifting Vicki up. We do this work um, with her direction in mind. The last thing she said was, do not stop. And when Vicki tells you to do you something, do you, you do, do it. it. No so, no <laughs> with that, um, I want to, first of all, give my gratitude. This would not have been possible without the time and effort of our team at AAPF and at the Center for Intersectionality and Social Policy Studies. Um, we, we do this work to lift up um, the mothers of Sayer Name, the family of Sayer Name, and other issues that fall through the cracks of our social justice advocacy. So please consider supporting this work. Please consider supporting um, this network. Um, there are many ways that you can partner with us to continue to lift up those things that may get marginalized or forgotten. And of course, I have to give a special, special thank you to, to my sisters, Maria Moore, Fran Garrett, Rhonda Dormius, Sharon Cooper, Gina Best, and Sharon Wilkerson. You can support the Say Her Name Mothers Network by clicking on the link in the episode notes or by visiting aapf.org. Intersectionality Matters is produced by Julia Sharp Levine. This episode was edited by Julia Sharp Levine with support from Jade Allen, Lulu Bata, Ivory Fu, Alexandra Moore, and Whitney Thomas. 
Additional support was provided by the African American Policy Forum. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters. Louis Scarcella was the greatest homicide detective of his generation. I am the protector of these people. I am the guardian that they need. Derek Hamilton was the best jailhouse lawyer of his. And the law was my girlfriend. It was all I had. What happens when a group of convicted felons take on the cop who put them away? We got to attack Scarcella. Come and get me. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.